the blood has been applied to my sins. Amen? And I say glory to his name. I'm glad you're here tonight. We're going to have a good service. Let's pray and ask the Lord to touch us tonight. All the men that will just come and let's gather around the altar and let's take this service to the Lord and ask that everything about it, the name of the Lord Jesus will be honored. He'll be glorified. Nothing would distract from him. Nothing or no one would rob him of any glory, but he alone will get the glory. He alone will be magnified. Promise you this, he'll share his glory with no one, with us or anyone. So if we rob him of the glory, he will not be here. But if we give him the glory, his presence will be real. Amen? So let's sing and pray tonight and ask the Lord to touch. Father, we thank you. You've saved us and we praise you and we thank you and we give you the glory. There is the glory, as the Scripture said, do unto your name. Glory that you are worthy of. Glory that you are so deserving of. Lord, we lift our hearts and our voices up to you tonight to give you praise and to give you thanks and to offer you the glory that you so rightfully deserve. So, Father, touch us tonight this service. Make the Lord Jesus Christ real to us. May we leave tonight loving you more. May we leave tonight saying that it's been good to be in the house of the Lord, that God made the Lord Jesus real to all of our hearts. So touch this service, and we'll praise you and thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Got another little chorus. Let's sing, and then we'll have our own. Lead me, Lord,
you. You may be seated. If you are visiting with us tonight, would you just raise your hand up there high enough for the ushers to see it? And they have a little guest packet that we want to give to you tonight, and there's a few things in there from the church. And also there's a guest card in there. We would appreciate so much if you'd take it out and just fill it out, drop it in an offering plate, and we want you to get to know us better. And we'd like to send you some information this week about the church. And so if you'll just raise your hand there if you're visiting, and these fellows will get one to you. And we appreciate so much if you'll take just a moment to honor us by filling out that card. And we, one of the things we're excited about is the Awana. They have something special coming up on Halloween. Kevin, I want you to come and say a word about it. And we need uh, your help and uh, some of the things we got going for this Halloween. So he'll tell you a little bit about it. Brother Rick said he liked my Halloween costume I've got on. Yeah, his day's coming. Um, we do have, you know, every year uh, Halloween comes around and we always try to do something special as an alternative for the kids. This year it happens to follow, happens to fall on Wednesday. And so it gives us prime opportunity uh, to give these kids a safe and fun alternative. And this year we'd like to do that. And we're trying to encourage all of our kids uh, to come here instead of going out through their neighborhoods, and, and especially during the time and kind of the scares and different things that uh, people are having, uh, we really want to encourage them to come. But in doing that and encourage them, we don't want them to be uh, let down because I remember how excited I was to get a bag full of candy and just the little treats and things there. And so we need your help. And what we were, what we'd like to do is we're we're calling that night creation celebration, and we want to try to take away from some of the negative connotations that the world gives to uh, the Halloween night. Um, and so our focus that night is going to be on creation, and we're asking all the kids to come dressed as something that God created. And we're going to try our best throughout the focus, and we're going to be setting up different booths that will be focusing through the uh, six days of creation. And in each of those booths, then the kids can go around, and they'll also, as they're learning about this, they can be getting their treats. Uh, but we want to be able to give them lots of things to take home. I know your parents will hate us for it, but they're going to get it here or they're going to get it there, and we'd rather them to get it from a source where we know it's a safe source. If you would like to, it, whether through your Sunday school class or just individually, would like to donate candy, uh, bags of candy. We, we, we prefer candy that is, of course, individually wrapped. Um, try to stay away from uh, homemade snacks that may not be sealed. And just so the parents feel good and safe about the candy that they get and the treats that they get but if you would like to help us see any of the Awana workers and uh, of course we've got a week and a half but uh, we'd like to know what we have if your Sunday school would like to help sponsor a booth uh, see myself or my wife Emily and we'll help you uh, uh, learn how you can do that as a Sunday school class but we really want this to be a special time for these children and we really like to make Awana something special that they'll remember. And we've seen people saved already this year, and we're excited about that. We, we had a, a young girl, uh, I don't know if she's here tonight, she was here this morning, that uh, went home last Wednesday night after Awana. 
and knelt down and got saved, and we are so excited about that, and uh, it is just a privilege and honor to be a part of this program, and if you would like to be a part, just let us know, and we sure would appreciate it. Kevin, why don't we just uh, put a big box out there in the lobby next Sunday, just have everybody that will bring a bag of candy or something like that. We'll have a box out there, so you bring all the good candy and what we don't use, I'll use it, and, uh, but... We'll put that, it'll be in the lobby next Sunday. So everybody bring a bag of candy, two or three bags of candy, drop it in that box, and we'll give it out on Halloween night. Let's let our ushers come forward to receive our offering and appreciate your giving. Again, I encourage you to be faithful in your giving. Your weekly giving is critical to our future plans. And so I hope that all of you will be faithful in giving of your tithe and your offering every Sunday. And uh, we still have a ways to go. Our offerings have been up. We still have a little bit of ways to go for them to be where they need to be for us to do what we're going to do. So everybody give and everybody give faithfully. Father, thank you for all you're doing. Bless all of our activities of things that we're trying to do to honor you and to reach other people. Bless these things and may they all be fruitful. Bless our offering tonight in Jesus' name. Amen.
Prophecies fulfilling, oh, and the signs of the times, they're appearing everywhere. I can almost see the Father. Ah! 
Let's all stand tonight as the choir's coming down when the roll is called up yonder. Get out right now and start shaking hands with everyone around. Make everyone feel welcome tonight. Shake hands with the choir. Tell them you appreciate what they're doing. Yesterday, I thought it'd be so discouraging for some of you, so I'm going to just read one verse, and that's verse 43. And all the Tennessee fans said, Amen. Amen. You'll catch that in a moment, Amen. I thought about reading the seventh chapter, verses 24 through 35, but we'll just look at verse 43. Let's stand as we honor the reading of His Word tonight. Yeah, I won't keep the Lord first in all that I do, Amen. Last Sunday night, I began to share with you, we began to look at the seven sayings of Christ on the cross. And I want us to look at the second. We looked at the first one last Sunday night. Let's look at the second one tonight. And it's found in verse 43 of Luke 23. Luke 23, verse 43. Jesus said unto him, we'll identify the hymn in a moment, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Now here's the second thing that is recorded in the Bible that Jesus said on the cross. And that is, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Thank you. you may be seated. And we're going to look at this second saying of the Lord, and we'll draw some things out of it tonight. And I'll look at them briefly. And reminding us of the truth of the Lord. Our Father, tonight you are near, and we thank you for it. You have promised in your word that you will never leave us nor forsake us. You have assured us in your word that your presence is always with us, that you are our light, you are our salvation, you are the strength of our life, you are a pavilion that we might hide in. You've assured us of this, and we thank you for it. Now, we thank you for what you have done for us. We thank you for what you purchased for us on the cross. And so tonight, as we take, go back to those moments and those hours in which you purchased our salvation, get our attention, soften our hearts to the work of the cross, speak to us now, and we'll bless you and we'll praise you and for all that you do, for it is in the name of the Lord Jesus we ask these things, amen. During the hours that the Lord Jesus hung upon Calvary's cross, there is recorded in the Bible, as I said a moment ago, seven particular things that Jesus said. Some of those sayings the prophets prophesied of hundreds of years before they were spoken. One such prophecy was given in Isaiah 53 and verse 12. There the prophet Isaiah said, Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. 
because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. In that one prophecy of Isaiah, there are two particular things that are stated and were fulfilled upon the cross of Jesus Christ. For one thing, Jesus or the prophet said that he would intercede for the, for the transgressors. Last Sunday night, we saw the first of the seven sayings of our Lord, and it is found in verse 34 of Luke chapter 23. And there we heard Jesus pray. And we thought about that the first thing that Jesus said on the cross was actually a prayer. And he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. As the prophet predicted, he made intercession for the transgressors. But also in Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 12, he not only predicted that he would make intercession for the transgressors, but he also predicted that he would be numbered among the transgressors. And when we come to the second saying or the second recorded saying of our Lord on the cross, we find him crucified between two thieves, fulfilling that prophecy that he would be numbered among the transgressors. It is one of those transgressors that we hear our Lord saying, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. As we saw last Sunday night, his first saying on the cross was a prayer. He began to pray for transgressors. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And in the second center of our Lord, we began to see that prayer answered. For we see the Lord Jesus praying for sinners that they would come to forgiveness. Now in the second saying, we actually see someone being forgiven. You might say that in the first saying, we see our Lord reaching up for man. But in the second saying of Christ, we see him reaching out to man. He reaches up to God on the behalf of man, and now in the second saying, he actually reaches out to man on the behalf of God. In our Lord's second saying on the cross, we have a wonderful story of God's saving grace. What you have in Luke 23 and verse 43 is an illustration of the depth and the height and the length and the breadth of God's love. I think about a story I read once before about Nansen when he was exploring the North Pole. And he said that as he entered into the deep waters of the North Pole, that the depth of the waters uh, were determined by the dropping of a pre-measured line. And so one day they came to a particular, they were in particular waters, and they found that the water was deeper than their measuring line. So they gathered up all the available line on the ship and rope and tied it, measured it, and then tied it to the line and dropped it in the water, and still it was too short. It is said Nansen recorded the depth of the line they had, and then he wrote the words, deeper than that. You could take the worst of the worst, but I want to remind you tonight that God's love goes deeper than that. There is nobody that has gone so far in sin that they're beyond God's love and they're beyond the reach of God's grace in salvation. And the first saying on the cross, as I said, he prays that sinners would be forgiven. And in the second saying, we see that prayer being answered. We see the conversion of the thief on the cross. And I find it very illuminating that the first answer to his prayer was a wicked, vile criminal. And it goes to demonstrate that God's love goes deeper than our sin. 
And it demonstrates that God's grace knows no measure and that the depravity of man is one thing, but the ability of God is another thing. I think of a story that I once read about a bar that was notorious for every kind of wickedness that one could imagine. But over time, it closed down, and a small group of people that had started a church bought that bar, and they turned it into a church. And it is said as you entered into that church building, above the door was a sign that read, where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. And may I say to you tonight that many of us were no better than that thief on the cross. But thank God that where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. So we have a wonderful story. And the first trophy of God's saving grace was an old vile criminal. Well, let's look at the story tonight. And may I briefly point out three things about the story of salvation that you have in the second saying of the cross. The first one is this. I want you to notice from the second saying of our Lord the availability of salvation. The availability of salvation. I think of the familiar John 3, 16, which I'm sure the majority can quote by memory. But it tells us and it reminds us and it declares the availability of God's offer of salvation. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. As well, God's Word declares in Romans 10, 13, that for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You see, this is the promise of God's Word, that whosoever can be saved. And the promise of God's Word is that whosoever calls upon the Lord, that is, whoever comes to Him and asks to be saved, that individual will be saved. And when you look at the events that surround the second saying of Christ on the cross, you see demonstrated the wonderful truth of the availability to salvation, of salvation to whosoever will. Let me point out a couple of things about this availability. The first thing is this. I want to remind you, first of all, of the purpose of the cross. The purpose of the cross. We talked about Jesus on the cross last Sunday night and his first saying on the cross, and we're talking about his second saying on the cross tonight. But first of all, let me remind you of why Jesus was on the cross. When we think about what he said on the cross, we must not divorce that from why he was on the cross. You see, unlike the two thieves that were on his right and his left, Jesus was not on the cross for any crime that he had done. Jesus was the guiltless one. He was guilty of no crime. False witnesses were brought against him, yes, and false charges were drummed up against him. But Pilate summed it all up when he said, I find no fault in this man. He was the guiltless one. But I carry that a step further. For Jesus was not only the guiltless one, but he was also the sinless one. As Peter said in 1 Peter 2, 22, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. In both his walk and in his words, Jesus Christ was the sinless one, guilty of no crime and guilty of no sin. He was the guiltless one. He was the sinless one. But yet you find him dying as the worst of the worst on a cross. Only the worst were crucified. But you find him dying among the worst of the worst and dying as the worst of the worst, even though he was guiltless and even though he was sinless. It was a case of the guiltless dying for the guilty. 
It was the case of the sinless one dying for the sinful ones. As the prophet Isaiah declared, he was numbered with the transgressors. But I want to remind you that it was much more than Christ dying with the transgressors. He was dying for the transgressors. Can I get an amen right there? For I remind you that in the, in the context of everything Jesus said, the whole scene is because Jesus was dying on a cross to provide salvation for sinners. And when you look at the cross, you see him dying as God's lamb, as the eternal sacrifice for our sin. I love 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21. I think you could spend your whole life trying to dissect that one verse of Scripture and never be able to do it. But what a great truth it declares. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That's what Calvary was all about. That's what Jesus on the cross was all about. It was the gracious one dying for the guilty ones. It was the virtuous ones dying, virtuous one dying for the vile ones. It was the sinless one dying for the sinful ones. It was the Savior dying for all sinners. When you look at the cross and you look at Calvary's cross, don't ever forget that he was dying for you. And when you look at Calvary's cross, don't ever forget that he was dying for me. You see, it was a personal matter, Jesus dying on the cross. I think about Alexander Wyatt, the great Scottish preacher. He told the story of a man who dreamed that he saw Jesus tied to a whipping post. And he saw the soldier scourging him. He saw the whip in the soldier's hand with his thick lashes studded here and there with bits of lead, which were intended to cut into the flesh. And as the soldier brought the whip down on the bare shoulders of Jesus, the dreamer shuddered when he saw the marks and the bloodstains that he left behind. And when the soldier raised his hand to strike again, the dreamer rushed forward intending to stop him. And as he did so, the soldier turned around and the dreamer recognized himself. I remind you that Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross, it was more than the Roman soldiers nailing him to the cross. Everyone in this room tonight was equally just as responsible. I nailed him to the cross. You nailed him to the cross. It was our sins that nailed him to the cross. Don't ever forget that Jesus had to die on the cross in order to provide salvation. That was the purpose of the cross, to provide salvation to every man, to make salvation available. When you think about the availability of our salvation, you've got to look at it in the terms of the cross, Jesus dying on the cross. But something else about this availability, the second thing I point out is not only the purpose of the cross, but I point you to the people on the cross or the people on the crosses. You see, we not only see the availability of salvation and the purpose of the cross, why he is there, but you also see the availability of salvation in the people that were on the crosses. Notice verse 32. And there were also two others, malefactors, led with him to be put to death. Now, look at that. Luke calls these two that were crucified with Jesus malefactors. Matthew and Mark calls them thieves. The word malefactor is actually the Latin translation of a Greek word that speaks of a robber or a criminal. Most Bible scholars believe that these thieves were revolutionaries in those days. 
They were men that were members of a guerrilla band that preyed upon Rome. They were ruthless bunch that plundered and stole and killed as they sought to undermine the Roman government. You see, Israel and the land of Israel was under Roman control. And there were those who fought that control. And so there was this revolutionaries, this guerrilla band that fought, sought to fight the Roman government. They were a hard lot. A modern image that comes to my mind, it's been placed in all of our mind, would be the pictures that we have seen of Osama bin Laden and his army. Guns in their hands and rolls of bullets or straps of bullets strung around their neck. You might say that this band of thieves or robbers, these terrorists or these revolutionaries were the kind of people that in our day would hijack a plane and fly it into a building to further their cause. That's what they were. And they did everything and they cared not who got hurt in the process. They stole and plundered and murdered to advance their cause in that day. So when you look at Jesus on the cross, imagine on the right and the left, there are two terrorists that are dying there. Men that were hard, men that were callous, men that lived a life of terrorism, and men that lived a life of crime and murder. But yet we find one of these men being saved on the cross. And does it not bless your heart to realize that the first trophy of God's saving grace was someone like an Osama bin Laden, a murderer and a terrorist. The first person God saved was somebody of that caliber. That gives me hope, don't it you? And that reminds me that if God would save somebody like that thief on the cross, then there is nobody that God cannot save and he will not save. He was the first trophy of God's saving grace. When the hours that Jesus died to purchase and provide salvation, he demonstrated the availability of salvation to all men when he saved one of the worst and one of the hardest of the hard and one of the meanest of the mean and one of the vilest of the vile. It was almost as Jesus was given a great object lesson for the ages and proclaiming throughout the centuries that nobody... It's too hard to be saved and that my grace reaches to the lowest. Amen? What Jesus was saying in the salvation of that thief is, whosoever will, let him come. It matters not how vile of a life you've lived. It matters not how low in sin you have gone. It matters not if you be sin-hearted and sin-callous. I am dying that all men might be saved. He is saying to everybody in the salvation of that thief, whosoever will, let him come. I think about in the fall, or I don't think about it, but I think about how I read in the fall of 1817, President and Mrs. James Monroe moved back in to the rebuilt executive mansion, the White House as we call it. And when they moved back in, they invited the high and the low and the rich and the poor to come and see the new president's house. And they all came. Everybody marveled and gaped at the splendors they saw. Such a medley of people the president's mansion had never seen before. In fact, it inspired one newspaper to give this, uh, describe the event in these words. All came. All came with their wives and gawky offspring, some in shoes, some in boots, and many in spurs. Some snuffing, some chewing, and some with powdered heads. Others with heads frizzled and sawed. Some whose heads a comb had never touched. Half hid by dirty collars and reaching far above their ears as stiff as pasteboards. But they all came. 
I'm saying to you tonight that the salvation of the thief was a public announcement that everybody's invited to the Father's house. He is saying, I don't care how vile you've lived and how wicked you are, everybody is invited. Thank God for that tonight. Amen. Amen. If it hadn't been a whosoever will, some of us may have not have got in. And if Jesus had required that we be good and, and been a perfect model, an outstanding citizen, the majority of us would have died and went to hell because the most, of, the most of us in this room tonight, we didn't live like a saint. We lived like a devil. But thank God, God's grace reaches to the lowest. And when he saved that thief, he was magnifying the availability of salvation. But look at the second thing I want to point out. Not only do you see in the salvation of the thief the availability of salvation, but second of all, you see the acceptance of salvation. Again, the Bible tells us there were two malefactors, two thieves. One was on the left and one was on the right. But as you father, 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 follow the story in the Scripture, you find there was a contrast in the two. You find that one of them would be in hell before the day was up but the other would be in heaven before the day ended. And the difference was in the acceptance of one thief of one eternal truth. Now look at these two thieves for a moment. And as we do so, I want you to notice why one went to hell and why one went to heaven. Here's salvation made available to all. But as we say in faith, forgiveness is available, but it is not automatic. There is something that must be done. I want you to point, I want, I want to point out two things that is required in order for a man to be saved. First of all, there is the sinfulness that must be acknowledged. There is the sinfulness that must be acknowledged. Look at verse 39. And you find the words of one of the thieves. The Bible said in verse 39, and one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, say, if thou be the Christ, Save thyself and us. Now, let me say a word about this thief. This is the one that was not saved. But let me point out a few things about this thief. You notice there that he says, If thou be the Christ, save thyself and us. Notice carefully that this thief believed in a Messiah. He says to Jesus, If thou be the Christ, the name Christ, that is a title, it is a title given to our Lord. And the word Christ, Christos, it means the anointed one, which refers to the Messiah. Now, here is a man that believes in a Messiah. Here is a man that is looking for a Messiah. He is looking for the anointed one. He believes what the prophets have said. He believes that Israel has a Messiah and that he's coming. And he says to him, if thou be the Messiah, if thou be the anointed one, if thou be the Christ, he was like so many Jews. They were looking for a Messiah that would come to deliver them, not so much to deliver them from their sins, but to deliver them from the rule of Rome. And in most Jewish thinking, they believed that the Messiah would come and deliver them from the bondage they were under to other nations and set up his own political kingdom upon the earth and rule upon the earth. So they were looking for a Messiah. They believed in a Messiah. And they were looking for a Messiah, a Messiah that would establish his kingdom on the earth, not a Messiah that would come and die on the cross. So he says to Jesus on the cross, he said, Are you the Messiah? If you are the Messiah, then save thyself. Come down from the cross. His mind a Messiah, but he did not believe 
own the Messiah. Now, follow me closely tonight. His case reminds us that salvation is more than believing in God. Salvation is more than believing in Jesus. Salvation is more than believing in hell or believing in heaven. Salvation is more than believing what this Bible says. I think I'd be safe tonight when I would say that the majority of people in hell tonight were not atheists. If you went to hell tonight, a very small minority of people in hell actually were atheists in their life. The majority of people that in hell believed in God. They believed in the Bible. They believed in Jesus. You listen to me tonight. Believing in Jesus is not salvation. Believing about Jesus or God is not salvation. You listen to me carefully. You can believe everything this Bible says about Jesus and still not be saved. You can believe in his virgin birth. You can believe in his deity, that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God. And when I say the eternal Son of God, I'm talking about one that had no beginning and one that will have no end. You can believe in his virgin birth. You can believe in his deity. You can believe in his sinless life. You can believe every miracle that he ever performed. You can believe that he died on the cross and rose again the third day and is coming back one of these days and still not be saved. Salvation is more than believing in him or believing about him. It is believing on him. And I'm not just talking about a play on words either. I'm talking about salvation. Remember last Sunday morning we looked at the question, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And you remember the answer that was given? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. You see, friend, I'm not, again, I'm not talking about a play on words, and I'll explain what I mean in a moment, but there's got to be a belief on Christ if you're going to be saved. But here's what I want you to get. Are you with me now? Say amen. But I want you to notice furthermore about this man. He believed in a Messiah, but when you look at him on the cross, there is no acknowledgement of his sin. You know, I think about the terrorists that attacked our country a few weeks ago. Do you think they feel bad about what they've done? Not one bit. You think they have grieved over the fact they took thousands of lives? Not one bit. They celebrated. One of the most disturbing pictures I saw on the news was over there in Palestine, people celebrating the fact that thousands had died in the United States of America. That, now, that gets my American blood stirred up. Amen. Would you think they feel better? No, they think they're doing right. According to their religion and their twisted ideal of the religion and the perverted ideal of the religion, they think that they're going to receive rewards and they're going to be honored for it. Now, you take this thief on the cross. He felt like his revolutionary life and his renegade way of living and his rent and his and, and way of fought against tried to undermine wrong. I'm sure he thought it was justified. And I'm sure he felt when he died on the cross, I am going to die and go to heaven, and I'm going to have all these rewards. I'm dying for my faith. I am dying for my religion. I am dying for a just cause. So he thought of death as an honor. And in his request for deliverance, you'll notice there had nothing to do with what he was. It had everything to do with where he was. And there's a big difference. Again, it had nothing to do with what he was. It had everything to do with where he was. Save thyself and us. Get us off the cross if you be the Messiah. But on the other hand, look at the second thief and his attitude. Look in verse 40 and verse 41. 
But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost thou not fear God? seeing thou art in the same condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man had done nothing. The second thief immediately rebukes the first thief, questioned his fear of God in the face of death. He said, man, what's the matter with you? We're dying. We're getting ready to go out into eternity. We're getting ready to be God. What's the matter with you? And furthermore, he acknowledges that we're getting what we deserve. He is confessing that their punishment is just and they're receiving the due rewards of their deeds. He's acknowledging his sinfulness, but it's not so much wrong that he's worried about. He said, dost thou not fear God? It's his sinfulness in light of his fact that he's about to meet God that he's now concerned about. You see, this second thief there realizes his Condition. I want you to listen to me tonight. I want you to listen to me closely. You know where salvation begins? Salvation begins with an acknowledgement of your lost condition before God. And salvation begins with an acknowledgement of your sinfulness before God. You said, but Brother Ken, I'm not that bad. As long as you have that attitude, you will not and you cannot get saved. But, Brother Ken, I've never done bad things. I've never stole. I've never committed adultery. I've never cursed. I'm not that bad. You may not have done those things. But yet the Bible declares, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one, and that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You may not have committed certain things, but I'll tell you one thing you haven't done. You haven't lived perfect. You haven't met the standard of God's righteousness and God's holiness. You see, God is holy. He cannot even think of evil to do evil or commit evil. He's a holy God. And the only way that anybody can exist in the presence of God is something's got to happen to them that's beyond their self. I'm going to tell you something. You've got to get lost, and you have to realize that you are a sinner. And the only way you'll ever get saved, it starts by acknowledging that, you've been, that you are a sinner. I remember the day I got saved. April the 2nd, 1972. I was a member, you've heard me tell this, I was a member of the Mount Lebanon Baptist Church just outside of Boone, North Carolina. When I was about 12 years old, I walked down to an altar and some preachers prayed with me. Nobody told me how to be saved. Nobody showed me how to be saved. They just prayed around me, slapped me on the back, asked me if I felt better, stood me up, and told everybody I'd got saved. Three weeks later, I was baptized, became a member of that church. But on April the 2nd, 1972, something happened in my heart. I was sitting right back. If you were looking back from the pulpit in that old tabernacle building, right back here behind an old pot belly stove, I was sitting back behind that stove, and that Sunday morning I realized something. I realized I was lost. I saw myself as a sinner. And when I went down the aisle, I came down the aisle. The platform came out in the corner. I knelt right here on this corner. If you were looking from the pulpit down, I got down on my knees on that corner, one hand here, one hand there. And the preacher came over and knelt down beside me. And the first words that came out of my mouth was, I can't be saved. I'm not saved. You know why I knew I could not be saved? You all know why I knew I was lost? Because I saw myself that Sunday morning as a sinner that had come short of the glory of God. And you get a person to see their sin, they will recognize their need of a Savior. You'll know what salvation is. It starts with an acknowledgement of sinfulness. 
Salvation is more than bailing you out of trouble. Salvation is seeing yourself as lost before a holy God. Amen? Second of all, you not only see this sinfulness that must be acknowledged and the acknowledgement of our sinfulness, but second of all, the Savior that must be accepted. There is the acceptance of the Savior. Look at verse 42. The second thief said to Christ, and I know it's late, and I'll get you out of here before 9 o'clock. I promise you that. Amen? 9.30. G- give me a little play time there. You, you give me 45 minutes to an hour. I know, it's a, I know we usually get out of here about 8 o'clock, but this is, I want to give this to you tonight. Amen? Amen. To bother you to stay late at church once in a while? Does it bother you? Then what are you going to do when you get to heaven? That's all you do. Amen? I hope, I hope, I hope God will let me preach and hem you up somewhere out on the sea of, on the, out there on the golden street. God will draw you all together, hem you up, rope you in, and say, Preacher, preach to them for two million years. And I say, Glory to God. Amen. <laughs> let me get back to the message. Verse 42, the second thief said to Christ, notice what he said. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into the kingdom. I noticed something here. The first thief said, if thou art the Christ, the Messiah, if thou art the Christ. But the second thief didn't have an if to it. He had a when. And he said unto, not Christ, but unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. You see the name Jesus? It is a name. It's his personal name, but it's a name that comes from the Hebrew name Joshua, which means Savior. He looked over at Jesus. One said, if you are the Messiah, then come down and get me down and deliver the kingdom. But the other looked at him and said, Savior. And he said, Lord, not if, but when thou comest into thy kingdom. He is not only has acknowledged his sinfulness, but he also acknowledges that Jesus is Savior and Lord. And what does he do? He asks him. He simply says, to him, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? In that one statement, he is confessing that he believes Jesus is the Messiah and the Savior. And in a nutshell, the best way I have said, he's just saying, Lord Jesus, will you save me? That's what he's saying. What does the Bible say in Romans 10, 13? Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And someone said, you believe in easy believism. I'm going to tell you what I believe. It is very easy. Here's the promise of God. When you see yourself lost and you see yourself as a sinner in need of a Savior, all you've got to do, you don't have to come and bring your portfolio. You don't have to come with a record and a notarized record of all of your good deeds. You don't have to bring tithing receipts. You don't have to bring Sunday school pens. You don't have to bring a life of good works. All you got to do is come and say, I'm a lost sinner. Lord Jesus, will you save me? And he said, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You know, when I got saved is when I asked him to save me. And when I asked him to save me, he saved me. Now, there's the difference between believing in him and believing on him. You see, believing in him is that you believe there is Jesus, that Jesus is real. He was what everybody says he was. But believing on him means that you believe on him. 
that you are trusting him. It's like you are taking your life, your sins, and your eternity. You know you're a sinner. You know you'll go to hell, but you come and you put all of that on him and trusting in him and accepting what he done. That's what being saved is. The tense, he said, remember me. And the tense of the words, remember me, indicate that he kept on saying it. Lord, please remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. Remember me, Lord. Remember me, Lord. Remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And we find that when he asked, then God saved him. May I point out a couple of things real quickly? According to what many say about being saved, are you still with me? The conversion of the thief teaches many things about being saved. These are not on the screen, but just jot them down. Uh, just a couple of things. For one thing, it reminds us and teaches us that salvation is not of works. The Bible said, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. There are those who tell you that what you've got to do is accept Jesus and live right. That if you'll accept him and then live right, then you'll be saved and you'll stay saved and whatever like that. There are those that say if you're going to be saved, you've got to live this way, you've got to do this, you've got to be this, and you've got to do all these things. Listen to me, that thief on the cross, he didn't have anything to offer God. He was a revolutionary. He was a terrorist. He was a murderer. He was a thief. He was a criminal. He didn't have anything to say, Jesus. Well, Jesus, I did help an old lady across the street one time. He didn't have any good works to give God. He was utterly bankrupt. But works didn't save him. It was faith in Christ that saved him. Furthermore, there are those that tell you that you've got to be baptized in order to be saved. Well, that poor old boy would have been in a mess. For Rome wasn't about to shut the crucifixion down, drag a, dig a hole and fill it full of water and allow him to get baptized in order to go to heaven. There wasn't no hope of being baptized. I want to remind you, baptism doesn't save you. It shows, it's a public testimony that you've been saved by the grace of God. Salvation is not in what you do. Salvation is not in that baptistry. Salvation is in the Christ that died on Calvary's cross. When you realize you're lost, you come to him and accept him. That's salvation. The third and the final thing. Not only do you see the availability of salvation, and the acceptance of salvation, but it's two things about the assurance of salvation. The second saying of, the, of our Lord on the cross, he assured the thief of his salvation in the words, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Jesus assured him of two things. One, he assured him that his salvation was secure. He looked over at him and said, remember me. In his agonizing dying moments, as I said, the tense of the words means that he kept repeating. He kept looking at Jesus, remember me. Remember me. Remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Get it? Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. An old terrorist at Osama bin Laden a vile, wicked criminal. Jesus said, today you're going to be with me. What he's assuring him is, I have saved you. He was assuring him that his salvation was secure. You look up here at me. I'm not holding on. 
I'm not hanging on to something. I'm not holding on to something. I'm not struggling and striving and doing my best to get in. By the grace of God, April the 2nd, 1972, I asked, he saved, and I'm as sure of heaven as if I was already there. There was a salvation that was secure, but not only was his salvation secure, but his destination was secure. Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Look up here. I don't have much of this world's goods. I'm just a hillbilly from the mountains of North Carolina. I don't have a dignified bone in me. When I get up here, I know. Now, you city folks, you want me to be so polished and so dignified and so cultured but it's just not in me. I'm a Tar Heel. I'm a hillbilly. I grew up in a little town of elevation of 33,000 feet, 3,300 feet, 3,333 was the elevation of our little town. I grew up in a mountain school. I went to Cove Creek, Hickville, North Carolina. I was just a hillbilly. I don't have much. But on April the 2nd, 1972, I asked God to save me. I asked Jesus to be my Savior. He saved me that day. And not only did he save me, he immediately dispatched orders for the building of a brand-new mansion that's got trivet on the door, Kenneth D. Trivet. Dale, if you're wondering what D stands for. It's got my name on it. Born March the 23rd, 1956. Born again April the 2nd, 1972. Look up here. I don't know a lot. I may never be a lot, but heaven is my home. I'm assured of heaven. My destination is secure. Thanks be to God. Paradise is mine. Heaven is mine. That's the assurance of it. Let's stand to our feet, please. Aren't you glad for 